Thanks for listening to the Cascade Vineyard Church Podcast. To learn more about our community or the vineyard movement as a whole, feel free to visit our website, cascadevineyard.org. There you'll also find additional teachings, information on our various ministries, and other resources for further developing your faith. We'd love to have you join us for worship. Enjoy this message. Turn to uh, go back to Luke 11, chapter uh, verses one through four. Again, we've looked at this passage a couple times already. I want to take one more pass at uh, what we uh, typically refer to as the Lord's Prayer. What uh, both James LaFollette and I mentioned is really, I, I believe, the disciples' prayer. In that, uh, the prayer in John 17 is really Jesus praying. This prayer is the prayer that He teaches us to pray. Uh, so it really is the disciples' prayer. A couple weeks ago, uh, when we looked at this. Uh, I focus primarily on the context of the prayer, which is discipleship, and the idea that the disciples wanted to learn. They wanted to grow. They observed Jesus, and then they came to Jesus and said, hey, teach us to do what you do. Teach us to pray. And that really is the mark of true discipleship. A disciple is somebody who wants to learn, who wants to grow, who wants to be like the person they're learning from. And so in in Christian discipleship, when we talk about that, what does it mean to be a disciple? It really means this, to be like Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's to be like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. Uh, That's our goal. And it really, frankly, is our only goal. I mean, there's a lot of things. What is your faith about? What is your Christianity about? And there's any number of things we could say that would all be true. But at the end of the day, uh, encompassing all of that would be simply to be like Jesus. Um, so so uh, with that, I want to go ahead and take uh, a look this morning, not so much at the context, but the content. I'm just having so many troubles today. That's what happens. Th- thank you. That's so kind. Uh, let's let's uh, look at verses 1 through 4 again. Uh, as Jesus is teaching his friends to pray. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation." Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we will uh, get into this. Father, I just, I just ask that you would open our hearts this morning to receive from you and to really grow in our understanding of prayer and of uh, intimacy and relationship with you and what it means to really uh, look to you and trust you uh, and really commune with you and communicate with you. So would you just uh, prepare our hearts for that and by, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, just uh, cause these things to become uh, tangible and real and attainable for us this morning. Amen. So Jesus begins this with the acknowledgement of who he's praying to. Before he asks for anything, uh, he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Now in scripture, and uh, really to some, to some extent in the first century, uh, sort of in general, a person's name was a reflection of their character. It meant something. Um, today, you know, that's not always the case. Sometimes it is, but more often than not, a person is named 
because uh, the name that the parents choose is cute or popular. Uh, sometimes it's a family name. My granddaughter's here today. Her name is Ember Glenn, and so her middle name is the same as my first name and my dad's first name, so it's kind of passed down. So sometimes there's that. Uh, very rarely, though, is it a reflection of character. These are the top, uh, go ahead and show, the top 10 names, baby names in the United States in 2019, in case anybody was wondering. This is important information. Ladies, uh, girls, Emma, Olivia, Ava, Isabella, Sophia, Charlotte, Mia, Amalia, Harper, Evelyn. We just had a niece born named Harper, so I, I think that fits right in there. Boys, on the boys' side, there's some... Um, Biblical references in there, Liam, Noah, William, James, Oliver, Benjamin, Elijah, Lucas, Mason, Logan. I don't know, is, is that the, isn't that Wolverine? Is Logan the Wolverine? Is that what their name is? So that's not biblical. That's just a kind of a whatever. Uh, but the point being simply that, by and large, those are not necessarily a reflection of the character of that person. They're names that the parents uh, gave them for, for some other reason. Uh, Luke tells his disciples, when you all pray, start with this. Uh, go to the next slide. Hallowed be your name. Go ahead. Click one more. There you go. Hallowed be your name. Uh, the name of God is to be hallowed or holy or revered. It's distinct. It's set apart. Uh, it says, this is who you are, God, and this is who I'm praying to today. Uh, and in, in a real, real, very real way, this prayer is a reflection of the third commandment, which says that we are not to take the name of the Lord in vain, right? The name of the Lord is to be a revered, holy, hallowed, separate, distinct, set apart. Uh, we don't use it for other things. It should be used only in the name, you know, it, it, to, to reference who God is. I, uh, I'm going to have a sip of coffee here. I don't live a terribly sheltered life. And on occasion, I'll be chit-chatting with some friends or people who may or may not know the Lord or go to church or whatever, and sometimes hear some curse words. Might hear the S word. Occasionally, somebody will drop an F-bomb. Those things don't really bother me. I hear those. It's not a big deal. I don't really... Ooh. But, that said, when I hear somebody use the name of God, either Jesus or God the Father, as a cuss word, it just causes me to cringe. That, that does bother me. That sends me uh, just kind of into this whole thing because uh, I really believe that the name of God is to be distinct and holy. It's not to be used, certainly in, in that context or for anything else. Central to the call of Israel in the first century was, and, and before even, was to make God's name holy. They, they were to magnify the name of God and make him famous among the nations, to give God a good reputation. That's part of what their job was. God looks good based on how his people behave. So let me ask this question. Uh, how do folks today who don't know the Lord, who don't know God, who don't go to church, who don't have any reference, how do they view God? What do they think about God? Do they think God is, is uh, judgmental or harsh, critical? Do they think that God is angry? Uh, we know, I think, those of us that know the Lord, that's not true, that that's not the way God is. But sometimes people who don't know him, that's the impression they get. And the reason they get that impression is because sometimes that's what they see in the lives of people who follow God. They see judgment and criticism 
and anger and harshness. And they make their determination about God based on what they see in us. When, um, when David sinned with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan came to him in the aftermath of that, and he told him a little story. He told him a story about a, a man and a sheep. He said, there was this man, and he had this one little ewe lamb, and it was the cutest little lamb. He loved that lamb. And that lamb would play with his kids, and it was, a, it was their family pet, and they would feed that lamb, and at night they would take that lamb in, and it would sleep with them, and it was just their precious little pet. And, and his neighbor, another man, had, had many, many sheep and many, many cattle. He was wealthy, and he had all that he would want. And one day a visitor came to visit that man, and uh, he said, let me feed you dinner. And he went next door, and he took that one little ewe lamb from that man, and he slaughtered it, and he fed it to his friend for dinner. And when Nathan told David that story, David said, that guy needs to die. And Nathan looked at David and he said, you are that guy. And after that he said this, and if you'll go ahead and go to the next slide. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The enemies of the Lord could speak ill in the name of God because of what they saw in the life of David. We glorify the Lord, we magnify the Lord, we exalt the Lord's name in worship. We said, you know, in worship we, we lift you up, we exalt your name, we glorify you. But we do that not only in worship, we do that with our lives as well. The next uh, phrase in this prayer, and if we can go to the next slide, is your kingdom come. This really is the heart and soul of prayer. This is the center of all prayer. Uh, it's a petition for the rule of God, the reign of God, the power of God to be realized here and now in this place at this time as it one day will be in heaven. In heaven, we know there'll be no sickness, there'll be no violence, there'll be no racism, there'll be no hatred, no heartbreak, no division, no brokenness. And this prayer is asking for that reality to come into the present situation. When we say, let your kingdom come, that's what we're asking for, that reality. We're praying that the perfect will and the immeasurable power of God would come to bear on the current situation, on the disease that our loved one is, is fighting right now. We pray your kingdom come into that. We pray uh, for the kingdom of God to come into the emptiness and the loneliness in our heart, into the violence in our nation, into the strife in our marriage, in, in, into the brokenness in our own soul. Whatever is wrong in this world, we pray let your kingdom come into that. Uh, I don't know that there are four more powerful words uh, in this language or any language than let your kingdom come. I would just encourage you guys, if that phrase is not a regular part of your prayer life, that you would learn to incorporate it. Uh, I have, over the years, as my prayer life has evolved, that's kind of become my prayer life, to be quite honest, is let your kingdom come into this situation. I would encourage you to... Uh, to really incorporate that in as you pray. Here's a prayer hack for you, all right? Uh, we want to pray consistently with God's will, right? We want to pray with God's will. We don't want to pray things that are not God's will. But have you ever been in a situation where you don't know what God's will is for that situation? Yeah. So you don't, you go, I don't know how to pray because I'm not sure what God wants here. I want to pray in accordance with what God wants, not what I want. Uh, but I don't know what that is. How do I pray in that situation? Let your kingdom come. You can't go wrong. 
because you're asking for God's will, not your will. Lord, let your kingdom come into this situation. Whatever it is you're praying for, uh, that's the prayer to pray. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Next phrase is, give us this day our daily bread. As children, um, the children of Israel were moving across the wilderness uh, ever so slowly <laughs> towards the promised land. Um, they were required to trust God for provision every day. Every day, uh, when they would wake up in the morning, there would be manna on the ground, and they could go pick up the manna, and they would have enough to eat that day. They would never be hungry. They would have all they needed, every bit as much as they needed. But if they tried to gather enough for tomorrow so they would not be hungry tomorrow, guess what would happen? It would rot and go gross because, uh, go gross, that's a theological term. Um, because that's not how it worked. They were required to trust God every single day. Anybody? Required to trust God every single day. Here's the thing. Look, it's, it's good to be secure. It's good to have savings. It's good to prepare for the future. All of those things are, are wise and good, but at the end of the day, we can only trust in God. And if you don't believe that, uh, I would suggest maybe talk to any of the 10 million homeowners who lost their home in the crisis in 2008. 10 million Americans lost their home who thought they had it all taken care of. And, and I want to be honest, let's be honest about this, okay? It is a whole lot easier to pray this prayer if you're in need than if you're not in need. Uh, you know, here, here's the thing. I mean, look, I, 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 I have daily, I know, what, I know what I'm having for dinner tonight, and I don't know what I'm having for dinner tomorrow night, but I know I'm having dinner. Uh, and so it's harder to pray that prayer. But I want you to know this, whether we realize it or not, we are every bit as dependent upon God as anybody else. So when I think of my friends in Nicaragua who may not know where their next meal is coming from, or when I think of the people sleeping under the bridges in Portland who may not know where their next meal is coming from, I have to realize I'm just as dependent upon God as they are. I may have this image of security about me, but the reality is that I am every bit as dependent upon God as anybody else. And, and here's another thing, and, and that's kind of the, the reality of that prayer. Here's the benefit of that. When we recognize our dependence upon God and we pray that, give us this day our daily bread in sincerity, it creates thankfulness in our heart. Acknowledging our dependence upon God will cause us to become thankful people. That's a gift. Go to the next slide, if you would. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. That's a, well, first of all, I guess I would say we all relate to that, don't we? Everybody sins, everybody needs forgiveness. Uh, it's interesting, though, to me, though, that forgiveness here seems to be a reciprocal reality, right? And that's what it says. Uh, forgive as we have forgiven. It seems to suggest, it looks to me like that says that forgiveness is predicated on my forgiving other people. Um, that's not just in this verse. We see that in other places as well. Click one more slide. Matthew 7, 
Do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Jesus speaking. How does that fit with what we believe to be true about grace, which is God's unmerited favor, and unconditional love? Those two things seem to be incongruous. One more slide. Matthew 10, uh, Jesus says, freely you've received, freely give. Sometimes I think we can look at these things and we try to figure this out and we can kind of take this quid pro quo mindset to Scripture. Uh, Quid pro quo is simply, you do this for me, I do this for you. But it's a legal term. And the reality is many of the early theologians, Tertullian and some of the church fathers who who, uh, interpreted Scripture and wrote a lot of theology, a lot of commentary, were actually also lawyers. And so... Sometimes the language sounds legal, and it, it, we can't be 100% blamed for looking at it in sort of a, a legal reality, because the truth is that's how our culture works, and we tend to view things in, in terms of the law. But the context of the Scripture is not law. The context of the Scripture is relationship. God's not looking for an attorney-client relationship. He's not looking for a judge-accused relationship. He's looking for the, the, the illustration the Scripture uses as a husband-wife relationship. Um, we receive and we give, and the reality is we can't separate those two things out. It's really all part of one process. It's not I do this for you and you do this for me. It's really these things are connected. We do this for one another together, and when God's kingdom reigns in our hearts and in our lives, that's how it works. There's a giving and a receiving that, that blesses the community, that blesses us and blesses us at the same time. And I, and I would say this is one of the most important things we can grab a hold of, um, in terms of our own spiritual growth. This might challenge you a little bit. You might disagree with me. Um, but I want to say this. It, it's impossible for you to have right relationship with God if your relationship with others are out of whack. And conversely, it's impossible for you to have right relationship with others if your relationship with God is out of whack. The two things go hand in hand, and you can't have one without the other. To have good relationships on this level with one another, we really need to make sure that our relationship with God is correct as well. When we ask God for forgiveness in our own hearts and in our own lives, it should spark us to want to forgive others as well. I mean, that should be the natural response of that. And the reality is that's because of the way that God created us to be. He created us in community. We, we are to be together. It's not a solo flight. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. You can quote me on that. There's an interconnectedness in the kingdom of God that is by design. It's God with us with God and us with others. And that's how he created it to be. Um, here, here. Sometimes people do things uh, that are incredibly painful, incredibly difficult in our lives. And we might have trouble forgiving that person. And we might think, you know, I, I don't want to be in relationship with that person. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't ever want to see them again. And I want to say that's okay. Relationship is not a prerequisite for forgiveness. 
And there may be situations in the course of life in which we actually should not be in relationship with another person, but that does not excuse us from forgiving them. We also have to say, and this is for our our own benefit as well as the benefit of of the community that we're in and the kingdom of God, we have to say, say, I release you from your debt. I forgive you for what's happened, even if we're not in relationship with him further. Here's another little something, and again, this might sound a little harsh, but I'll just throw it out there. That is that if you have a hard time forgiving somebody else, I would encourage you just to, to, to consider the reality that we have done much worse to God and he's forgiven us. Okay? So, uh, last but not least, lead us not into temptation. You know, what does that mean? It's a, it's a, it's a weird little phrase, isn't it? Um, God doesn't tempt us. We know that, right? Go ahead and go to James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt us. So what does that verse mean? Sometimes it's explained like this. People will say, well, don't let us fall into temptation, which makes more sense. That, that makes perfect sense to me. But the problem is that's not what it says. Uh, the verb uh, lead us is active, not passive. And uh, so it, it really is directed towards God. The key to the verse is this, and this is where I, I think we, it's uh, maybe a little hard for us to understand. Um, the key is actually in the word temptation. The Greek there is parosmos. If you would go to the next slide, it can mean tempting or test. Both sen- This is the definition from the uh, Greek dictionary. Both senses can apply simultaneously depending on the context. The positive sense, test, and negative sense, temptation, are functions of the context, not merely the words themselves. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say I believe the translators got it wrong here and that that should say don't lead us into testing. If contextually, if you're looking at the context, if I'm doing perosmos in a negative sense with the hope of having you fail, that's a temptation. I'm putting a temptation before you hoping you fail. If I'm doing perosmos with the goal of having you succeed, I want to I see you do better, uh, I want to see you grow, then that perosmos is a test and it's a positive thing. And that's what that is saying. God does not tempt us, but he does test us. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. And that was perfect. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. God will test us. Matthew 25. Go ahead and go one more. Jesus says this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What was that in response to? The master gave the different people some different things and he had them use that money, use, the, use those resources in a different way. Some did better than others. I would call that a test, was it not? Well done. You passed. You got an A. It's using what God gives us to further the kingdom and that, that is the testing that God does. A few points on this. I just want to testing for a minute. First of all, 
it's, it's not a test to prove if you're worthy of salvation. You are. That's settled. That's done. It's a test to see how well prepared you are for service. How, how will you be used of God to advance his kingdom in the world around you? That's really what the testing is about. Uh, if you girls want to come back up, you can. I'm going to be done in about four and a half minutes. How's that? Does that give you enough time? You ladies. I say kids and girls sometimes because I love them like my kids, but everybody, they go, you're grown-ups. I go, I know they're grown-ups, but I'm old. <laughs> I'm old enough to be their grandpa. Uh, second thing, it's important to recognize that not every test is from God, okay? Um, some tests are the results of choices we make. We might make a choice, and that leads us to a place in the road where we got to go, ah, now what? And there's a test associated with that. Sometimes they are consequences of choices other people make that are thrown at us. Sometimes um, they're just random. Sometimes stuff happens, and it leads us to a point where we have to make a decision. There's a test involved in that. Sometimes they are, in fact, from the enemy. So not every test comes from God. Uh, God can and will use any one of those for his betterment, for our betterment, for his kingdom, but they're not all from him. And then the last thing in regard to testing is that not every hardship is a test. I think that's important. Uh, we go through difficult things in life, and sometimes I, I've, I've had situations where I've heard of, seen, you know, eh, uh, somebody maybe lost a loved one prematurely or something like that, and a person said, well, you must be a, a real true warrior of God because God never tests anybody beyond what they can bear. Uh, I'm like, no, 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 no. That was not a test from God. That was a tragic situation. So not every difficult thing we go through is a test from God. Um, the reality is this. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And, and so, so in, in that, the re- stuff happens. Things happen. So, so my, my humble opinion on this particular verse is simply this, that following Jesus is hard. It's not always easy. And the opposition that we face, the warfare that happens along the way, further complicates the process. So I believe that Jesus is saying to his disciples here, hey, when you pray, just ask that nothing extra would happen, that there wouldn't be any further testing any more than what you need. And I believe that that interpretation is consistent with the rest of the prayer, which really is a prayer for dependence upon God. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to sow into what God is doing through Cascade Vineyard, we always welcome your prayers for our church body, our communities, and our leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially, please visit cascadevineyard.org give.